Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm going to resort to some notes for my questions. When I'm an interview subject, I can blather extemporaneously for hours, but not necessarily as the moderator. So uh, I'd like to welcome you to the Commonwealth Club, which today has endangered its classy image by actually asking a Hollywood comedy screenwriter to moderate a discussion of complex and very tense geopolitical issues. Uh, Wish me luck. And I'm very humbled to welcome Natasha Lance Rogoff, who I happen to know personally, um, to talk about her new book, Muppets in Moscow, The Unexpected Crazy True Story of Making Sesame Street in Russia. And I found this book to be, I'm sorry if the superlatives embarrass you, Natasha, but it is entertaining, scary, in places very darkly funny, romantic, and finally, really uplifting when it demonstrates the artistry and the resilience of the Russian people. And it also gives you a peek behind the curtain, uh, the Iron Curtain maybe, at a moment in Russian history that is sadly gone and it's replaced now by authoritarianism. So um, Natasha's mission and that of her parents' Sesame Street company was really very altruistic. It was uh, to educate millions of ex-USSR children, now Russian, encouraging honesty, humor, kindness, and, of course, racial tolerance. What could go wrong? Okay, so thank you, Natasha, for joining us today. And here is my first question. You were a student and filmmaker in the 80s in the pre-collapse USSR. Uh, Tell us how that came to be. Well, first, I want to thank you for that overly generous introduction. (laughs) I meant every word of it. You know, it's awful when you have to read your friend's book and you don't like it. I loved this book, honestly. <laughs> and uh, thanks so much to the Commonwealth Club and for everybody tonight for coming also. Um, when uh, Sesame Street tapped me to produce uh, the original production of uh, the iconic American show in uh, Russia, it was really an unprecedented time. And uh, the Soviet Union had just collapsed uh, a few years earlier. And uh, this is uh, one-seventh of the world's surface. So huge, massive territory. And this included uh, Central Asia, Ukraine, Armenia, Georgia. And uh, it was really a period of incredible hope, uh, excitement, but also pain and humiliation uh, because uh, they were a superpower. And confusion, I would imagine, about who they are now and what to hold on to and what to let go of. Nobody had any idea what the future would bring, and especially for their children. Yeah. Okay, so when talk about how you became fluent in Russia and, and how you uh, studied there first, because it, it seems like that prepped you for being the kind of person they might have thought about to give this job to. You, you weren't just some Hollywood TV producer that were dropped it cold into this yeah. environment. You, you knew your way around. Well, or so you thought. Yeah. I mean, I thought I was the last person that should be doing this production. Why? Because I had no children's television experience. Oh, there's that. And I had, uh, I had spent uh, 10 years in the uh, Soviet Union previously. So I spoke Russian, having worked for you know, television news and making really serious documentaries. And, um, but you were the, fluent, right? I was fluent in Russian. Yeah. And then these two Sesame Street executives showed up at a screening of a documentary which was called Russia for Sale, The Rough Road to Capitalism. And I had just come back after embedding myself with uh, fascist um, communists who didn't want to uh, see the Soviet empire fail, and they wanted to retain power. And so these Muppet guys come up to me, and they're like, would you help us bring Sesame Street to Russia? And I said, you know, did you guys just watch my film? (laughs) (laughs) I just, I was right. completely confused. And then they, they just said, uh, you know, this was a wonderful guy, Gary Nell, who said, uh, you can't, come on, come on down to the headquarters. You know, nobody says no to Elmo. <laughs> well, you didn't, did you? Um, so I'd like you to set the stage for us because when you were there before, it was the USSR, like you say, fascist, 
and and humorless. And here you are about to bring this sparkling children's program. Uh, what was different when you went back uh, initial, you know, after you got the job? What was what? What did you walk into uh, culturally? Culturally, it was still very similar because it really had only been two years since the Soviet Union collapsed. So, you know, it wasn't that dissimilar from what it had been before. They hadn't shaken off the hangover. <laughs> they hadn't shaken off 70 years of communism Correct. overnight. Although you would think that, you know, if you mm -hmm. looked at this project in particular, was uh, funding for it was spearheaded uh, by Senator Biden, then Senator Biden. And so, you know, the, the West was just evangelical about the collapse of communism. And, um, you and know, they thought that was it. It was all going to be good now. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were somewhat naive about, you know, how long it would take uh, or if, you know, at all possible for Russia to change. Now we're speaking of that, of that naivete that kind of leads into the next thing. The Henson Company, which is also Sesame Street, and they are lovely people. And both my husband and I have worked for them. Um, oh, and yeah. they're known for their cultural nuances when they do they they had previously done a number of foreign sesame streets and they didn't usually go in thinking they were just going to xerox what they'd been doing in america and uh in your book it speaks about how they would really look at the history and culture and music and costumes and colors of these various places and they had a really good reputation for being sensitive to those things and yet when you got there it seemed like russia was particularly insurmountable in this area. So if you could tell me, like, was it Western arrogance that we, everybody just thought it would be a cakewalk, or was there more naivete involved uh, that, that sets the stage for your unbelievable Herculean struggle um, to get this done? Well, I mean, Sesame Street has international co-productions all over the world, and they did then, too. And as you said, Henson, the Henson Company, built the puppets for those international productions. And each of those productions, ideally, were supposed to reflect the values and culture of the different countries. So, for instance, in, uh, in um, you know, every Sesame Street international co-production has a neighborhood, and all the neighborhoods look different. So in South Africa, it's a marketplace. In uh, Norway, it's a train station their neighborhood. In the U.S., it's an urban uh, environment that is, the idea for that was basically Harlem. So when, you know, we went to, to create the uh, Russian production, we used the same model that Sesame Street had used in all the different countries. Successfully, correct? Yeah. I they mean, didn't was, get it, the amount of pushback that you were about to walk into. Uh, no, they, the, this no. was probably the first, one of the first productions, I think, that most of their productions were in Europe or in uh, Mexico, where I had also worked and trained before I did the Russian production. But the, but the challenges in this production were enormous. The cultural clashes, you know, well, we, we faced, I, I'll, I know, I know we're going to talk about this at some point, but we faced tremendous, uh, uh, violence, you know, uh, in the uh, with um, our uh, our sponsor, our first sponsor of the show had his car blown up, and we'll I, get to that. We'll get to that. Okay, I won't we'll talk about that. that. <laughs> okay, but but in terms of the culture, the uh, you know there were many many areas that that came up during the uh, curriculum seminar, which is a three day workshop where we bring together um, child educators from all over the former Soviet Union and the creative team. And at this meeting, uh, you know, we are trying to decide what are we going to teach children of the post-communist era? What values, what, what scenarios are we going to write? You know, how, do we, how will these Muppets model new ideas? So when we did that, the, um, you know, for instance, like I raised my hand and I said, we were in this discussion, and I said, what about um, a scenario where, where children would um, uh, have run a lemonade stand? 
And, the, you know, the reaction to that was just horror. You know, how, <laughs> how they, and they explained, they said, you know, this is, this would be shameful to have children selling things on the streets. You know, the only people that sold things under communism on the street were criminals because independent commerce was illegal. Making wow. a profit was illegal. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. You also got pushback about whether they even needed Muppets at all in Russia. Yeah, we had uh, the, I, I mean, we nearly had, I think, an international crisis over the Muppets. And the, the, uh, the Russians, um, I, would, I say Russians, but we had, you know, Russians, Ukrainians, Armenians, everybody. Sure. But the creative team, um, really, they didn't like the, the, the uh, Henson-style soft foam muffins. Fuzzy. Yes. And when we first proposed the series, uh, the head writer said, um, well, we want to use our own Muppets. We have a revered tradition dating back to the 16th century of puppetry. And um, Okay, I have to stop you there for a second. <laughs> so their thinking was, if it was good enough for Catherine the Great, it's good enough for my four-year-old. <laughs> that is true. Oh, God. And I think some of their actual national, nationally known puppets that had been on television were probably not something you wanted to pursue. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. They were damn depressing, these puppets. No, no. The first... <laughs> if not scary. Yeah. The first time, um, you know, as, as they were arguing in favor of their own Muppets, so they had me meet with their chief puppet designer... <laughs> And he walks in with two sacks and he pulls out these puppets and he starts, um, you know, holding them up. And one puppet says to the other puppet, I'm going to kill you, you know, and this is all, this is all in Russian. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, this puppet on puppet violence is not very Sesame Street like, and, you know, and the, and the, and the, and the characters had like, they were wooden and they had really cruel expressions. So I thought, this just, you know, we're looking for something very different, something completely uh, Well, there was lots original. of centuries of things being a howling bummer. So I guess <laughs> that that just reflected that. Wasn't one of them a cannibal? Oh, yeah. Well, they... <laughs> I love what she remembers. Um, well, I read it over the last two days because yes. I wanted to be fresh. So this is not like I read it a month ago. This yeah. is burning yeah. in my brain right now. Yeah, no. Cannibal the, Muppets. Yeah. yeah. The Hansons will love that. At the end of one of the these uh, very, very long meetings where, you know, the, the whole table was covered with, like, coffee cups and cookies and everything for hours trying to figure out what to do. And um, they did, one of the people said they really wanted to have Baba Yaga as one of their uh, Muppets, and that is a witch who eats children. So <laughs> I was like, we have, a, we have a long road to go here. But it wasn't only that. It was also like the music director. Oh, this who, is good. Who was a, um, uh, you know, an accomplished uh, pianist and a, and a um, composer, and she insisted that the show only have classical music. And everybody knows, I mean, Sesame Street is known for its music, its diversity, its inventiveness in terms of the music. And also, I had lived in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, for, uh, during this earlier period and had made another film about underground rock and roll. And a lot of those musicians had been persecuted under communism. They weren't allowed to record their music, they weren't allowed to perform, and they couldn't make any money earn a living from And if music. this woman had had her way, they would have stayed that way. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she but, was one of the more rigid and inflexible quite, characters that yeah. I... Yeah. And another, another colleague called her the oldest 30-year-old I'd ever met in my life. <laughs> right. Um, Talk for a minute, though, because there is a lot of cultural pride, legitimate cultural pride that these people had. Um, and possibly mistrust of the West because they'd been indoctrinated to think that for so many years, and now suddenly everything cracks open and they've got Pizza Hut and McDonald's, which they might have mixed feelings about, right? And so, and now there's going to be adorable, clever little ditties like Rubber Ducky in Russian uh, 
they uh, admittedly they did not do, use any of the same songs that we knew in America, but you know there were arguably going to be new ones created that kids could actually sing. I don't see kids on the playground, you know, singing Prokofiev. I mean, but this is what she thought, right? That, yeah, I know. Well, I I understood where she was coming from. I mean, they had an incredibly long, rich tradition of music, and actually, most of their animated series. Uh, for you know, for children, used classical music, and they're beautiful. It's all cell animation, and we were lucky because the talent base of these incredibly talented people was very high. So we pulled people. Our team was about four hundred oh puppeteers, artists, uh, set designers, writers, producers, and and directors. So at this time, the studios in um, in Russia were black. There was no money to make films, and they were unemployed. And when I went back to Russia in January of 2020, and I met with the chief director, who's now in his 80s, and he told me something that he hadn't told me for 30 years, and he had played hard to get when I was going trying to hire him and telling me, oh, I'm doing another film right now and everything. And he told me in January that he hadn't worked in a year and a half, that he was incredibly uh, worried about feeding his family. And when we offered him the job, you know, it was like the greatest gift at that time. But it took him 30 years to tell me that. Would you say that economic fear is one of the largest reasons why you were able to assemble this team? I, did I they want yeah. to, what percentage of them do you think actually wanted to help you bring Sesame Street to Russia? And what percentage uh, of them initially, because I know this changed over time, yeah. just wanted the paycheck, which also didn't come right away, but we'll get to that. I, I would say that that was not a depiction of the of the team at all. Really? And that, you know, the, after, after uh, you know, living under communism for that many years, people felt this incredible release and hope and passion about trying to create a better Russia, a different Russia. As they often referred to it, we want to create a normal country. Oh, and that's, they, that's the very same, sad. At the same time, they did have enormous pride, and, and rightfully so. I mean, Russia has made tremendous artistic contributions oh, God, to yes. the world. And what they did, you know, I've worked in, I had worked in different countries, the experience that I had uh, creating the Muppets, for example, with the Russians uh, was like nothing at all. I mean, the discussion of what the color was going to be of the Muppets involved a multi-dimensional conversation about uh, Kandinsky, Vasily Kandinsky. And the artist had written a treatise on the um, theory of color. The meaning of color, yeah. Right, which was... If, you know, it related to the emotions that different colors carry. So this had to be part of the discussion. That, because everybody was fluent in that. Yes, everybody. And they looked at me when I said, what are you guys talking about? And they said, oh, yellow, you can't be yellow. That causes madness. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then they, they got to the red one and, the, you know, makes children hyper. And I thought, wait a second, Elmo's red. You know, I mean, he's like the most popular character, mm -hmm. but, you know, eventually they chose, they chose blue. And even that was a discussion because the word for blue in Russian, Goloboy, means gay. So some of the people thought, people will think the puppet's gay. And I was like, puppets don't have a sexual identity. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that's so funny. I'd like to back up a little bit because even though this is all stuff that I love, um, to when you've kind of just arrived there and you are told by corporate headquarters that one of your first tasks in this kind of unstable environment is to find a broadcasting partner. And I'd like you to discuss, this is the part of the book where I felt like Natasha was like Sisyphus, pushing this boulder up the hill only to have it roll down again and explode. So it's worse than Sisyphus. So if you could get into that a little bit, this was where I began to think I would not be woman enough to go through what you went through. Um, and I'll ask you more about how you managed to persevere in the face of the things she's about to tell you. 
Yeah, I mean, there were there were the environment after communism uh, had fallen apart uh, was very violent. So the um, the center of the, the government was was weak. And at this point, you had uh, the West, Western bankers, investors flooding into the country. And there was enormous amount of money flowing into Russia at this time. And the oligarchs were starting to take over. So at this point, uh, you know, we're Sesame Street is a nonprofit and we are looking for a sponsor for our show. So we finally found one uh, in um, uh, one of the oligarchs who... Uh, um, you know, decided that what we were doing was important. And um, we negotiated uh, a deal. He was all in. And, um, you know, he he was sort of upset that Big Bird wasn't going to be in the show, but they were going to have their own original uh, Muppets. Blue Bird. Blue Bird. You did win on the blue thing <laughs> after all. Gay Blue Bird, yes. Yeah. But, but anyway, he... Uh, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, his car was blown up in a uh, car bombing and he had severe burns over most of his body and he, um, had to leave, um, the country, the country immediately. <laughs> and that was one deal that exploded. And then not less than a few months later, we did another broadcast deal. So this was now the second time we had done this. And that was with the head of Russia's largest, um, television broadcaster there were only two channels in russia at this time so they didn't have cable as we did in the u.s there there were a few tiny stations that were just starting and that signal from the russian station was sent across 11 time zones so when we got the deal to do the the broadcast it was it was a it was a big deal and uh this was this was a wonderful man vlad Lysyev, who was trying to bring freedom of expression, a free press to the TV station, and to battle corruption inside the television station related to advertising revenue. And when he went home to his, uh, to his house uh, after leaving the TV station, uh, he was shot on the steps of his home. This, and this was, is the moment where I want to ask you at any point if you were personally afraid for your own physical safety. Um, I wish I wish I had been more, um, you know, it's it's sort of like you're younger, you you don't think you sort of think you're close to it. But this these two circumstances were probably the scariest moments for me, uh, other than one other moment that happened later. But yeah, um, there's, you know, it was just a little too close for comfort. Um, and mostly I was just really sad because these were people that I had, you know, come, become close to. They were my confidants. They, I trusted them, and they were going to help us. And, and at no point was there ever an official explanation, of course, right? To this day, that murder of Vlad Listyev has 120 judicial files um, in, their, in, their, um, in their police station, and it's still unsolved. One of the things in Natasha's book that I found, in retrospect, typically Russian, is these unbelievably fraught things would happen and there would never be any explanation. And you would never really know who was behind it or why. I mean, it could have been the guy's mistress or it could have been a complete political, you know, hit job. And that's always scary when you don't know what you're dealing with or who's behind it. So this leads me to what I personally found, even though she was not physically present at the time, to be maybe the most scary incident. Those were awful, but this actually had to do with your offices. Yeah. We had, uh, so our office was inside the television station. This is the same station that I visited in January 2020, which was, you know, surreal to be walking around the same place 30 years later, but now it was completely different. And um, we had all of our scripts and equipment, uh, even a life-size Elmo that was our mascot in the office. And uh, what happened is uh, soldiers came in all of a sudden. They had AK-47s, and they took over the entire floor, 
and kicked everybody out of the offices and then took locks and sealed the lock uh, on the offices and put wax on it and said, everybody, that's it, you're done. And of course, everything was in this office. And at this time, there are no computers. We didn't have, I mean, computers existed, of course, but we, we had very limited use of computers because most of the people, well, nearly 99.9% .9 of the people we worked with had never used a computer before. So we had all of our written scripts and everything in this office. And that was pretty terrifying. Um, okay, this, uh, there are some slightly more lighthearted things I'm going to get to. Uh, but you had a glamorous female financial partner who professed great affection for you, uh, but barely came through with offices or production money. And you never really knew what the deal was with her to this day, do you? I mean, Irina, Irina yes, yes, she of the designer boots and fabulous oh, hair, is. but like somehow it, it seemed like uh, corporate headquarters had to bail you out a few times um, with, with cash infusions. She did finally come through with, with new offices. Yes. No, she was amazing. She had, she was, she, she was the kind of person that, you know, she would, she could get anybody to do anything. She was, Including uh, you. Including me. Yes, she was coquettish and incredibly powerful at the same time. And, uh, um, yeah, she, she, she created, she made my life hell, but at the same time I adored her. I mean, I know that her heart was in the right place, but there were, it was very difficult to be a woman in the advertising and production business in Russia at that time. And for my team, I mean, we, we hired... Um, mostly women. So it was when I accepted the job for, with Sesame Street, I knew going in, you know, Russia is a very patriarchal, sexist society. And I had come from America as a film person, and it was also not easy. So I thought, okay, I can create the team that is, you know, more than 50% women. And so having a female partner and females in Help facilitate key, that. key roles made it, you know, a really unusual production. All right. Um, like you didn't have enough on your plate with all of these other things. And I'm going to get back to some of the creative things that you did in a minute. But uh, you fell in love, got married, and got pregnant all while trying to lift, like Atlas, the world on your shoulders. Um and after corporate headquarters agreed to step in with a cash infusion because Arena wasn't quite there yet, uh, you know, because your people weren't getting paid, you became something that I have never before heard of, which is a lactating cash mule. Can you <laughs> tell that story to these people? I was howling when I read it. I mean, I realized it was scary because you were going through customs, but people were literally, that wasn't easy ways to get money to Russia. You can talk about why that turned out to yeah, be Yeah, I mean, there were, no, there were no Western banks in Russia at this time. And uh, it was impossible uh, unless you establish yourself as an entity legally in the country. But also... If you if you sent money to Russia, it was in your your dollars were immediately converted to rubles, and the ruble was devaluating like twenty five percent each month. It'd be meaningless in a, a month. Yeah, I mean yeah. you couldn't run a production like that. Right. So you know we had to come up with other ways to do this, and there were a lot of discussions around this. But in one, uh, you know, everything we did was completely legal, and um, you know at one point I had to carry, you know, the less than the legal amount of $10,000. And of course I had a double D size bra because bra. I was pregnant and I could, anyway, there's ample room for, for the cash is all I can say. Well, it's a good thing. None of the customs people tried to cop a feel <laughs> because you would still true. be in a Russian jail. Uh, I, I, that just slayed me. You know, it's funny now because she got through, uh, Okay, so we've talked a little bit about some of the creative pushback and difficulties, but was what was the what was can you talk about a couple of major creative turning points yeah. you had where these people start to come together, understand each other better, uh understand you better, 
uh, there's a point where it started to actually gel. And it was a long time coming, too. There was a lot of pushback. Um, some people quit because they didn't get their miserable, sad Russian music or other reasons. Uh, so tell well, me. That, yeah, I mean, that, that case, if you take the music, for instance, the woman who was dead set against modern sounds, you know, she met with uh, one of my friends who had become a rock and roll star later. And, you know, I th she was scared to meet this guy. I mean, he wore leather pants. He had an earring. This was terrifying for her from where she was from, having been educated in the Moscow Conservatory. But she came back from this meeting like a changed woman. They found commonality. They had children the same age. And from that point on, you know, he explained to her that, you know, he could also write music for children. And this you know, a uh, guy ended up writing some of the best songs for the show. And the, um, the pianist, the music director, was able to change her attitudes and accept bringing in all kinds of young music artists. So that, that you know, did happen. She didn't have to quit. And, and the, um, the other, another example of this is, for instance, when we were discussing um, inclusivity, Oh, this is good. And, um, you know, this was at the three-day curriculum seminar with all the uh, education experts. And um, we showed a clip of a uh, from Ses the Sesame Street American show to give them an idea of, you know, how, how uh, tolerance can be addressed. And in this little, in this clip, there's a little boy in a wheelchair and he's with a friend and he's flying a kite. And in the background, there's this upbeat song, you know, me in my chair, we go everywhere. And I'm watching the clip and smiling and the video ends. And I, I look at the, the group and they're just looking with, at this, you know, at me and the TV. And they just say, how can you do that? It's so exploitative to show children in a wheelchair. And then another woman says, um, uh, why would you, uh, why would Narmanijeti, normal children, ever want to watch a TV show with Ni Narmanijeti? And she's saying it like just innocently. And I'm sitting here listening to these, uh, you know, enlightened educators and thinking to myself, maybe they're not ready for Sesame Street. Maybe this is just a really bad idea. And, you know, this is kind of disheartening because I'd already been through you know, previous discussions, how they didn't want our Muppets. And, you know, there were all kinds of other challenges related to this besides the classical music. And, and then, uh, you know, one woman says, you Americans don't understand that um, our children will never have wheelchairs, that um, our country, you know, is, is falling apart that our uh, healthcare system has collapsed. So we have children who are trapped in their beds. And if you have children who have wheelchairs in the TV show, how will these children trapped in their beds feel? They'll just be sad. Wow. That's intense. So it was intense. But then, you know, I mean, it, it goes on from there because as the debate continues about how to handle this, because these these educators feel a sense of responsibility. They're making a show in a, you know, for millions of children. And they want to change the country, but they're not sure how. And you know, one, one guy said, he said, he was a physicist, and he said, you know, uh, you're, you're tasking us with coming up with a TV show that can teach children and model for children values to help them thrive in a new open society. But we don't know what a new open society looks like. Wow. And could you speak to the racial inclusivity part? Because that was, that I think was one of your triumphs actually. Um, the, you mean? Well, the, the, the various different racial, like they didn't want, like, I can't remember if there was Ukrainians or like they wanted, you know, it was very, because all the different uh, types of Russians that they are and, and uh, so racial and, and yeah, societal. No, 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 that's, yeah. a, that's a really good question. So um, during this particular seminar, it was very difficult 
because uh, there was a um, an attack in Budenovsk, which was uh, Chechens were taking over a Russian town. And it was one of the first attacks where you had post-Soviet brothers fighting against each other. Yeah. And so there was enormous uh, feeling of hostility towards the Chechens and Central Asia. So, um, you know, our goal was to create a TV show that would appeal to all children of the former Soviet Union, and there are over 123 nationalities That's where I was in the former Soviet in Union. That's where I was interested in how you yeah. to do that. And so, you know, this, there was this, this uh, experience that went over several days while we were having this uh, discussion with the educators um, took, took enormous uh, strength and I'd say tolerance on the part of the people um, in the, in the, um, in the workshop because they had to come over their feelings of incredible anger in order to think of the bigger issue of, you know, educating everybody. And they did. And they did. Yeah. But I guess the Chenchen Muppet was out. You weren't going to make one of those. No Chechen puppet. <laughs> okay. I want to know, um, can you just come up with one example of a moment you really felt you turned the corner? Was that what maybe what we were just discussing? Or was, is there another one we haven't discussed where you I, suddenly after pushing I would say, the boulder? I would say, okay, so just, I mean, stay, just continuing on this theme of inclusivity. So I mm -hmm. didn't really finish that story, but... You know, what ended up happening is that there was a woman um, in the back of the room who suddenly spoke up and she said, you know, my name is uh, Ludmila and I'm from uh, Chuvashia, which is a small region in Western Russia, which extends from the Volga to Siberia. And our town was used as a dumping ground for hazardous chemicals during the communist era so we had the highest rate of deformity, uh, oh. deformities of children. So as she's talking to the group, and they're still trying to debate this issue of inclusivity, and she says, I work with these children every day. I play with them. I laugh with them. And they yearn to play with normal children. She's the word normal. And, and, and she was heard by the others. They heard she, her. They, I, I watched her speaking, and then she, she pleaded with them, why can't you write scenarios for these children that show them as human and valuable to the society? And the guys who had spoken earlier who said, you know, oh, it's, you know, you can't show children in wheelchairs, and they're all sitting there, you know, shifting in their seats uncomfortably. And then I look around the room, and I see that a couple of people are crying. Uh. And, uh, you know, this is, this is humiliating for them. And you have Americans that are sitting in that meeting with them as well. Were you crying too? I was crying too. And I was trying to hide it, you know, because I'm the one who's supposed to be in I'm charge. I'm starting now. Yeah. <laughs> and it was really, uh, you know, an incredible moment because I didn't need to say anything. The Americans just sat there and this group, They said it to each other. They said it to each other and they saw... You know, it was like she was like an angel, you know, descending into the room. Into the and, chaos. Yeah. And then everybody just, you know, came to this conclusion that together that they had to do this. They had a sense of their responsibility. I want to know something that doesn't have to do with an angel coming down, although it does sound like that's what it was. Why were you able in the end to succeed? I mean, this seemed like an insurmountable. The more you read this book, and, you know, it's got lots of freakish humor in it, and it's very engaging, but I would have packed up and gone home week two. Um, why were you able to succeed? I think that, that they could have sent 99 other people, and they would have washed out. Was it your love of the culture? Was it your respect for the creative process? Tell me why you think in the end you were able to succeed because she did succeed. The show did get made. It did become a huge hit from the day it first aired. And it was on the air for years, even after she left. We all know the end of the story, 
but I'm very interested in what you think you were able to pull out of yourself that that made you with the assassinations and the and the AK-47s in the office mm-hmm. and these tremendous clashes of all of these creative egos. Um, I just, what, why do you think you succeeded? I think it was very much about the people that I was working with mm-hmm. and um, seeing the sacrifices that they were willing to make and the incredible hope after living under communism for so many years that you know, the idea that it was possible that this country, this vast country could change was, you know, incredibly seductive. And um, the ambition that Sesame Street, you know, as a nonprofit, the, the risks that the company was willing to take, um, it was phenomenal. I mean, most companies would have walked out at that point. And these people knew that you cared about and respected them. I did love them. Yeah. And, you know, and also people were dying. I mean, there are people that were, you know, you work with them every day and suddenly, you know, they're just murdered. And this didn't, you know, I didn't even talk about the third person oh my who God. was also murdered. Oh my God. That was the third broadcaster. And, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the two weeks before I had given him a tickle me Elmo doll and he had a picture of his uh, eight year old daughter on the, on his table. And we talked about that. And he was this kind of buff, attractive guy who like hugged me, which is when he first met me, which is kind of unusual. You know, they usually have a little more distance with Russians. And, and this guy, you know, was also murdered. And no explanation. No explanation to this day. I can show you, I mean, there's a picture of him in the book. Um, but you know, when you're in that environment and then you go home, you know, you, I go back home, uh, to my fiance who then became my husband and, you know, um, and you're in, in America and it's, it's, uh, you know, peaceful by comparison and stable and has had 200 years of democracy. So you go back and you have go out to dinner with friends and they're talking about, you know, pasta and real estate And then then you go back to Moscow and you're in this intense environment where, you know, there's the possibility of creating a totally different future and to give, you know, children something that can help them, you know, move into a more open society. So, I mean, being part of that for me was a gift and it was nothing like making documentaries. And it overcame the fear. It overcame the fear. I mean, I definitely was afraid. I wouldn't say overcame the fear. There were many times when I was afraid. And um, I just, you know, I had excellent team. I had a very close partner, um, uh, Leonie Zagalski, who, from Moscow. And um, you did have a very close friend who had your back. Yeah. And I, I was working with you know, but uh, Natasha, I have to stop you yeah. because that was my last question. Why did you succeed? And we will now uh, negate the possibility of anyone else asking you a question. So <laughs> I, it's that time where we have to turn it over to the rabble. How did the office lockout resolve and what were the challenges to making that happen? And revisiting the studio in 2020, what were the most meaningful comparisons and reflections for you? That's a pretty long question. So, um, I'll try and I've got a couple more. So do what you can. Yeah. So the, uh, the office takeover was not resolved. We lost everything and we had to start from scratch again. And, um, all the script writers were working in their apartments for an, I guess about another two and a half months. And uh, there were no cell phones, so we couldn't call anybody. We couldn't have any meetings because nobody would know where to go. And finally, we um, we would set up these. Uh, we would we would set the meeting for the next meeting at each meeting, and then people would show up at somebody's apartment, and we would be discussing scripts or whatever we had to do. Um, and as far as going back to Moscow in in 2020. I was absolutely stunned to discover that the studio, studio number 13, where we shot, had never been renovated in all that time. Like the equipment was new, but the walls, 
were the same. And when I asked the woman, so when I went into the stu- into the, the TV station, and when I went in this time, they had all kinds of security and that wasn't there, you know, earlier. And there were no, there were, I understood there were no Americans, you know, walking in and out of the TV station at that time. And they kind of didn't understand why I was there. Um, they didn't believe that I had made Ulitsa Sazam, which means Sesame Street in Russia, until we went to the studio and they mentioned that there was somebody who worked on the show. And they called this man, Anton, who, had wor- who was like an audio engineer, and the- they had him on a speakerphone. And they said, there's this American here who you know, says she worked on Ulitsa Sazam. This is all in Russian. And he says, is that Natasha Lance? And from then on, their behavior changed completely. Yes, they turned into pussycats. Okay, this is one you can answer fairly easily. What kind of response did Elitsa Saddam receive in popular social culture in Russia, and how large or small was its viewership? It was a huge hit uh, across the entire former USSR, and it lasted for 10 years. Um, It aired on Russia's two top TV channels simultaneously, which had never happened uh, previously. And um, my my information now is anecdotal, you know, more recently. But when I meet people in uh, in Europe and in the States um, who are from the former Soviet Union, like the Georgian nail salonist who I saw the other day, and they just, uh, you know, they'll often start, when I tell them that I worked on the show, and they'll say, uh, you know, they'll start re- reciting a song from the show. It's very much like Sesame Street. It was that popular um, So this answers in the this post question US about it having too. a lasting influence. Uh, but uh, this, this questioner did want to know why, why it was canceled and when it happened. Is this a Putin so, thing? Um, it was canceled. Uh, it was very hard to get... A, like one answer to this question when I was interviewing people for the book, but essentially um, as relations with uh, the U S and Russia worsened and Putin was cracking down on independent media, there was a real grab to control a lot of programs, including our program Sesame street. And they, the people in charge, the TV executives wanted to fire uh, the research director, the Russian research director, and replace some of the people um, because they didn't like perhaps the ideological direction the show was going. And this leads into this question, which was, were there any particular storylines on the show that caused a reaction from Russian viewers that you didn't expect? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, not not in my tenure, not in the first... So really you know, no pushback at all after all that. I mean... That's amazing. The show is very Russian. <laughs> um, I mean, I... Oh, I have a picture here. The, Do they drink vodka? <laughs> no, not on the show. But the characters, like the Muppet, the, the uh, blue uh, Muppet character, Zeli Boba... Oh, you have that picture you can show them. Oh, yes, thank you, is, um, is here... And he is, his origin story is fascinating because he came out of um, uh, Russian folklore and he's based on a domovoy, which is the spirit of the hearth and the home. And he lives in nature. So he became Zeliboba. And if you, if you look closely at the picture, there's tufts of uh, moss and grass and twigs in his costume, and on the show, he lives inside a 40-foot tree. This is an oak tree, which is so Russian, even down to the oak leaves, which had to have the correct number of points that, so that it would be consistent with Russian oak leaves. And I'm not kidding. Like, all of the characters... You had an art department that I would kill for. The, the I art, mean, yeah. they, they were just... They were they were true artists in every sense of the yeah. word. And, and it was... Everything had to be like that. And the only problem is that, you know, at this time in Moscow, they didn't have any uh, bark, 
or there was no like a scenic design where you could go and order this stuff. So we actually had to transport 60 boxes of bark and leaves and grass to Moscow, um, you know, by hand. But not in your bra. Carry. Not in my bra. God, I'd be pretty bad. Your are looking That'd up. be dangerous. That'd be painful. Here's a question I think I know the answer to, but you'll know better than I. Were there other programs being produced on Russian television at this time which were revolutionary? The answer is no. Yeah, I, I had a feeling. There were later. Later there were, uh-huh. um, but not at this time. And at this time, there was only one other uh, children's show, Spokoni Nochi Molashi, and it was like a 15 minute, uh, very didactic uh, show. Um, and it, it had been, it was, it was a show that kids um, were shown before they go to bed, which was basically like watch the show, be obedient, go to bed. Show us some of these other pictures. We have time. We have a few minutes. You have time. Okay. Yeah. And so this is. Um, this is a the uh, the male character is Kubik, and he's basically a modern nerd, um, and and he um, he he's based on uh, a Russian um, literary character who's like a ne'er do well, so he comes up with ideas. He's very inventive, but he's always inventing things that already exist, like a clothesline. And then Businka, which is the little hand puppet here, is the female Muppet that was created originally for Ulitsa Sazam. And um, this was a real discussion because uh, in the book, I go into great detail about the gender discussions um, because they, they initially the team, uh, many people on the team wanted her to be docile and kind of sweet, often uh, similar to characters in uh, Russian literature that are female characters. But the young writers, the female writers, were like, we don't want to do that. We just had this revolution. We want to create a whole new stereotype. I, I mean, a whole, we want to counter the stereotypes and create a whole new way of modeling how young girls can be. So they made her very energetic and um, uh, she uh, is kind of mischievous, uh, and she dances the lumbada. <laughs> so that's how that was her character. Um, is that it? Well, I have one last question for you, which is: the corporate parent Sesame Street company had to know virtually all of the things you were going through. Did you feel they were properly appreciative of what you were holding down? It was, you know, it's a different company now than it was then. The kind of work that Sesame Street is doing as a nonprofit in Syria and all these countries, including creating programming now for Ukrainian children um, and refugees all over the world, you know, it's very mission-driven and it's it's incredibly internationally focused. Mm-hmm. But at the time we were working, it was very much focused on the U.S. domestic production, and um, we were we were a small unit. So I think there were people that worked with me closely, and they're in the book. They're yeah. heroic people yeah. who fought. But it wasn't uniform, un- uniformly approved inside the corporation. So I often felt at the time that I was being, you know, that there were enormous obstacles both in Moscow and there were also obstacles on the corporate side, you know, in the United States. But me personally, I always preferred the obstacles in Moscow. (laughs) It was easier for me. Welcome to my world with corporate uh, entertainment company behavior. I've, I know more about that than what you've been through. I mean, I'm sure you do. Is there anything else because we have just a couple minutes left that I haven't asked you about or we haven't touched on. Yeah, I I, I do want to talk about one thing, which is that, um, you know, when we, uh, we decided to um, hold the auditions oh. for the children, 
This was uh, just before we started the filming of the Muppets, uh, the, the Slavic Muppets with the Russian actors in the newly created neighborhood. We had to cast all the children for the show. And um, I had been looking forward to this moment for months. This is when you hear, you know, sweet soprano voices singing. And I thought this was going to be fabulous. And I get to the, um, to the um, uh, auditions and the director asked me to kind of stay in the back because most of these uh, parents with their children had never met an American before. And they said, you know, why don't you, you know, that might intimidate them a little bit. So just let's not introduce it. And um, as I sat there, the first little boy comes in and all the children are performing completely isolated from each other. So they can't hear what the other children are singing. And the first little boy comes in and he sings this song from Belaruski Vagzal from a film. And it's a World War II song. And the plant, oh, the, the words are something like, the planet is burning. <laughs> you know, everything is lost. <laughs> I die now I, happily. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, okay, this is, this is really weird for a comedy show audition. <laughs> but I'm like, was he on pitch at least? He was, and he dropped his voice. He was, he's talking in an octave. Oh my God. Oh, sitting, you know, standing upright like this. And then the, he leaves. And then the next little girl comes in, little blonde with blue eyes, a beautiful girl who then sings this song from, called Katusha. And she, it's kind of this morose World War II song <laughs> about a, um, uh, a, a, a woman uh, bidding her lover farewell as he goes off to the front. <laughs> so this, so the rest of the morning is like this, and I'm just sitting here, dumbstruck. You're thinking this and, country needs children's songs. I'm like, I'm like, and I this was already after dealing with the classical music thing, and so then at at lunchtime I ask the director and I say to him, "What's going on? Why, why?" What are they singing on this? You know, I was expecting like, oh, McDonald's had a farmer, <laughs> itsy bitsy spider, and um, and he says, uh, Natasha, you don't understand. These, you think of these uh, songs as morose. These songs are poetic and lyrical, and these are the songs that bring children comfort. Oh, these are the songs that they sang with their grandmothers. And uh, he says, you shouldn't think of them, you know, as, as sad songs. And then he says, our children uh, um, read poetry from a, a very young age. And they expect sadness <laughs> in their music and in their lives. <laughs> the, the Russian relationship with misery is really like this. And that must have been very hard for you to pry that apart a little bit and let some sun in the crack. It was, but it was often such an organic process. You know, you yeah. ask what kept me there. It was not only the discussions about Kandinsky, but it was also these moments where you have this discussion. And then, you know, several months later after we had, um, we tested some of these, you know, serious songs that we had created and the director was open to changing his mind because in some of these videotaped research studies where we taped the kids and uh, watching the show, um, the reaction to those songs was not as good as when we had the upbeat music. And in one of them, a little boy picked up a fake pistol as he was watching the lyrical poetic songs and he shot the little girl with the braids next to him. <laughs> So the director was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but then... Great way but, to make your yeah, point. But, you know, I, I will say, Leslie, that, you know, one of the things I think about now that, you know, brings, you know, just gives me such solace. And I thought about this at about four o'clock in the morning one night. And I, 
this was as I was I had been watching all these young men and women uh, marching out of Russia. Yes, uh, in their late you know they're in their late twenties and early thirties, and you know they don't want to they don't want to fight they don't support the war, and it occurred to me that's the age cohort that watched Ulitsa Sazam. Yeah, that's the Ulitsa Sazam generation. And then as I was lying in bed, not able to sleep, just, you know, it's been hard with this horrific war and having seen where we were 30 years ago and where we are today. And I realized that in Ukraine as well, that the young people fighting for their independence now, who are the same coach, cohort, age cohort, they are also the Ulitsa Sazam generation. Yes. So we did make an impact. And that must know, feel good. Yeah. Last thing, do we have time? Do I have time for one more thing? Um, I want you to describe your feelings the night it first aired and what you saw and experienced that night. I That was one of my favorite days. <laughs> I bet. I had come back to Moscow uh, after giving birth to my son. And um, I was there with my colleague who I mentioned earlier, Leonid Zagalski, we had a big celebration. It was a premiere, the night of premiere of the show. Every uh, major foreign network was there and, um, you know, uh, um, just international press. And we had a big show with the puppets, with the Muppets, uh, Zeli Boba, and the kids were screaming. There were so many people in the audience that the kids were lining in front of the stage. And when this... Um, finished, uh, I went outside with my colleague, with Leonid, and it was snowing. And uh, we stood stood there in the snow in their apartment blocks in front of us, uh, these cement Soviet-style apartment blocks. And it, this was around, you know, just before six o'clock. And we uh, looked up at the windows and noticed that all the windows were changing color uh, simultaneously. So it was like blue, 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 red, you know, just like all the same colors. And it occurred to us that the show had just aired and they were all watching Ulitsa Sazam. And it was this, this incredible feeling, you know, of all you the... You didn't even have to wait for the overnight numbers. You knew everybody <laughs> was We just was looked at it. the apartment windows. Oh, God. Yeah. That is great. Are we out of time? It seems like we might be. Is there anything else anybody wants to ask? I'm done with my cards. I'm done with my questions. Does somebody have one that I didn't get to? Uh, basically, did their uh, lifestyles and mindsets uh, have any impact on how you view the world? and ways to change? That's a great question. Um, I would say that uh, absolutely, that the group that I worked with, you know, it was an incredibly spiritual uh, group of people. And the scene, like of the, when we were actually shooting, it felt a lot like Sesame Street in, from what I had heard, in the start of Sesame Street in 69, um, and a lot of the people who had been there, I had not been there at the start of Sesame Street in America, but they said when they visited the set in uh, Moscow that it really reminded them of that. And, you know, that made me incredibly happy. But also it made me realize some of the different values. And, you know, one, one particularly in the script writing, and, um, for instance, there was one, one time when we were uh, developing a story that was going to teach kids the idea of happy and sad. And in this story, there's a little girl and little boy holding a balloon. And, one of the, and the boy lets go of his balloon accidentally, and he starts crying. And the little girl, you know, is still holding her balloon. And then... The scriptwriter wrote this storyboard, then the little girl lets go of her balloon, and they watch the balloons go up into the sky together. And they share this moment, you know, enjoying the beauty in having nothing together. 
And I realized that if that had been written by an American writer, you know, and my reaction was the same, why didn't they just keep the other balloon and share the balloon? You know, like, (laughs) I was like, what? You know, and so it really... If you have nothing, I can have nothing too. (laughs) That's very Russian. Yeah, it was very Russian. Yeah. And I thought, and it, so I had a lot of moments like that. And it really made me think about, you know, values that we have, our, you know, consumeristic society, um, you know, every, every question that, that came up in terms of the script writing really made me question a lot, um, you know, the direction of our own society. Anybody else? Uh, thank you. Is there anything with regard to the mindsets or behavior of the people there that, uh, in the nineties that, uh, you think precipitated, uh, some of the more, uh, authoritarian and Putin-esque aspects of Russian society today? Or was it a more uh, open and freeing time where there was no shadow of that? I would say that um, the period of the 1990s uh, was an incredibly painful period for a lot of Russians and a period of extreme poverty. And um, the expectation that, that Russia could change and would change and eventually mirror our society was really naive. But this uh, difficult period for, for the Russians was effectively used by Putin in his narrative in order to justify authoritarian uh, policies that he adopted in order to prevent such violence from happening again. And he often, uh, you know, notes the 1990s in his contemporary speeches. So I think there is a correlation between the time periods. Are we out of time? It seems like we might be. Is there anything else? Well, thank you, everyone. Natasha? Please, thank you. That was fun. Natasha. (laughs) I'm Leslie Dixon. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.